Amen. Thank you, Davey. Uh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, nice to be back. Uh, grateful. If you're new to Willow Park Church, uh, my name is Phil. I'm the pastor here, the lead pastor at Willow Park Church. And um, we went back uh, to England for our Christmas break. And so my grandparents, my great-grandparents, actually the kids' great-grandparents, uh, uh, send their love and their thanks. We had a great time and uh, we've really blessed uh, by that time. But it's nice to be home. And, and it's nice. Home is where the dog is. And so the dog is there. The rabbit is there. Everything is fine. Uh, one of our, Michaela Berger looked after our house beautifully. And so uh, we, we, it was great. And so I don't know how she coped with the dog. If you... <laughs> Yeah, uh, but apart from that, uh, everything um, was wonderful. So thank you for your prayers, thank you for your love, thank you for your Christmas greetings, and uh, Happy New Year. And we're stepping into an amazing new year, aren't we? Absolutely wonderful. And what a way to start the year with uh, prayer and fasting. Now, before you think about fasting, you go, ah, fasting, I can't possibly do that. First of all, I'm not asking you to fast for the whole of 21 days and just be on water and bread, okay? Or just on water. Now, there are some hardcore, you know, individuals that, that do do those, those wonderful times of, with the Lord. But this is the first time, I believe, Willow Park has set out on a prolonged fasting period. What it means for you is that I want you to pray about what you want to change and give up in the journey for 21 days for what you are praying for and believing for, okay? Now, for some of you, it may be so significant that one day a week, you miss a meal. That's the beginning. It may be for others that it's as simple as giving up a certain thing in your life. For others, it may be that you are missing one day, one meal every day, throughout the whole period. For others, it could be a, a full day fast once a week. For the, the, some of you, it could be, well, you know, it's a real sacrifice to me, but I choose to do it because I'm believing God that I'm going to give up Starbucks. And I don't know. It could be, for you, media. It could be in many different areas. Begin somewhere Begin measurably, begin sensibly, but know that God sees our sacrifice and answers our prayers. And he loves us. Now, I have produced an information sheet with loads of ideas of different things you can do, different ways of approaching uh, a whole period and the whole time, right the way through. And so please pick that up and you can get involved in what we're doing and what we're involved in. But you will notice that as you came in and your your bulletins, you were given uh, one of these. And this is really the 21 days of prayer. You may have three things that you are believing for, that you want God to do in 2016, that you want God to do in your lives. And there, I want to encourage you to write down those areas 
and to place them in your Bible. And through this 21-day period where you're praying for breakthrough, where you're praying that God will work, where you're praying that God will be at work, you will hold on to those things. And when we gather together on February the 1st for a Praise Willow One service of prayer and worship and thanksgiving, I'm hoping that we'll hear testimonies of what God has done over these 21 days. Of course, because... What I'm going to explain to you today is that when people are faithful to God, God is faithful to his people. And that God reaches out and wants to work in our lives and do remarkable things. So I know for some of you, uh, it may seem daunting. And I want to know for some of you, it's about baby steps. And I honor that because we all start somewhere in our spiritual journey with the Lord as we create space and create time. The Jewish nation fasted once a year on the Day of Atonement. But when they knew that they needed God desperately, like Nehemiah, they suddenly broke in to a different way. And, and, and Nehemiah himself fasted for three days because he knew that God wanted to do something powerfully in Jerusalem. And we are beginning a new series. And in this new series, we are exploring the life of Nehemiah and the principles and the vision that can be birthed in our own lives. So as we look at this and understand it, we realize... See, I've got a new, I've got a new switch thing that, that, that doesn't work at this moment. You may see, look at this, it's amazing. Um, it's actually a lightsaber. And um, actually, it's, it's died on me, isn't that? So what we're going to do is run the old way. And uh, thanks, Jen, I love you and I owe you a Starbucks. Okay, so let's go. A passion for the cause. Uh, really what Nehemiah was, was battling with and understood was a passion for the cause. And that cause was to be willing to, to know that God had put a cause on his heart. And I think as church, what we need to realize is that God has called us for a cause. What the story, if you don't understand the story, there is a guy called Nehemiah that is in the Persian Empire, and he is the cupbearer of the, of the king, and yet he's a Jew, and God speaks to him about going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. And this is a challenge, because he starts to think about rebuilding the walls. You know, why is this so important? Why is this? Because Jerusalem has been destroyed. There are walls that are broken down. And there are walls that need to be rebuilt. A city is nothing without its walls. It has no peace. It has no security. It is no great city. And this is a major problem in the history of Israel because Jerusalem is destroyed and the walls are gone. Yes, we'll talk about it in a moment where we're at, but, but there is God's plan at work and God's plan seems to be completely broken and seems to be going in a different direction. So Nehemiah is there. Now, why is this so important? Well, let me just give you, for some of you that don't know how the Bible all fits together, let me give you a little highlights of God's plan and the work within the Bible. And this may be of interest to you. Let me start right away in, in a tent. In front of a tent, a man is sat there called Abraham. 
And Abraham is there and God speaks to him and sends him from a place called Ur there in central Iraq to a promised land that God says he can go to this land. And when he gets to this land, God promises him that he's going to raise this little family grouping into a mighty nation. But there's a problem. His wife is barren and has not given birth to a child. But God spoke a promise, and this is what God said, that through Abraham's family and descendants, you will become so numerous as the stars in the sky, you will become so abundant like uh, sands on the seashore, that actually you're going to bless the world, and through you all nations will be blessed, which is quite a thing. But Sarah did become miraculously pregnant, and God did work, and the family began, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob had sons, 12 of them, and we know the story, and they started to grow as a family, they started to prosper, and God said, yes, I can see this coming together. There's a story where the youngest son, Joseph, was sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. A famine hit the land. Um, Livestock and animals were dead everywhere, stinking. There was a crisis. People were starving to death. So the brothers made their way down to Egypt. And there in Egypt, they suddenly discovered that the youngest brother is still alive. You with me so far? And discovered that the youngest brother is still alive. And there was God's grace and forgiveness at work. And they were welcomed into Egypt. And there they served the Pharaoh. Because the youngest brother had become the prime minister of Egypt. And they grew in number. And they served in the temples. They served in the nation. They were part of the administration. As one Pharaoh moved to another Pharaoh, suddenly there was a switch. And they were no longer in favor. They became slaves, enslaved for 400 years. They'd forgotten the goodness of Joseph there, the Egyptians had, and rather than serving the palaces of the pharaohs, they now built the palaces of the pharaohs. And for 400 years, they struggled. For 400 years, it was tough. They were finding it so difficult and so hard. And then, and then they cried out to God, because God had promised them In Abraham, that they would be a mighty nation, blessed, but now they're a slave nation. They're experiencing nothing but oppression. They're watching their babies die, and they're seeing the pain and the agony that is taking place. God heard their cry and raised up a man called Moses. You know of Moses. And he was one that was chosen. And Moses is a wonderful character. He's actually the first tennis player in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. Because he served in the courts of Pharaoh. And there he was. Come on. And there he was serving in the courts of Pharaoh. And and he spoke and God gave him authority and gave him power. And he led them out on the great exodus through the baptism of the Red Sea. Destroying the enemies. But the key moment is this. They're in the wilderness and there's a mountain. Sinai. And there God meets with the people on the mountain and he makes it pretty clear. This is the way that it works. This is the contract of how it's going to work in our lives. Well, how's it going to work? Listen, get it straight. I am your God. You, you are my people. If you are faithful, if you 
Follow my decrees. If you honor me first, if you're willing for me to be your God and you are my people, I will bless you. You will know me. Be faithful. Be righteous. Listen to my leaders. Listen to my voice. Know that I am with you and I will raise you up. So get that right. But if you don't, you're in trouble. Because rather than being blessed, you'll be cursed. You're in trouble because there will be difficulties. You're in trouble because in, in your situation, you will, you, you will know great pain and difficulty. Well, this was too much. And, and Moses there again was the first person in the Bible to take drugs for his headache. Because God gave him two tablets. And so... <laughs> sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> I, it was. It was awful. But I kind of liked it though. <laughs> and so God said, get it straight. And, but what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness there for another 40 years. Why? Because they didn't believe in their God. They didn't worship their God. They didn't trust their God. They'd rather moan and groan and grumble. They were unfaithful. Therefore, they found themselves in a problem. You see, it's pretty simple. When God is your God, be faithful to him and you will be blessed. If you go against what he says, then you will be cursed. That's what he said. So finally, after 40 years, Joshua led them into the promised land. Cities collapsed. God was at work. They established the tribes. They started to grow. They cried out for a king. God gave them the good-looking Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, because they wanted to be like other nations. But it was always simple. Obey me, and you'll be blessed. Disobey me, and there are problems. And what happened? Saul turned a heart that was beautiful into a heart that was wicked. And he fell under the power of the sword. Then God, of course, anointed David. And David, who was the shepherd king, the poet king that God raised up. And he, of course, God used him powerfully, a man after God's own heart. And then Solomon who built the first temple that God used in power and, and amazing. But then in his conflicted heart, at the end of his life, the nation was split in two. And there we have Israel in the north that we call the northern kingdom, kingdom. And we have Judah in the south that we call the southern kingdom. And I suppose it represented Solomon's heart, in my mind, that, that it went in two different directions. And there we had Israel. Now, the story of Israel, if you've ever read the kings in the northern kingdom, is quite simple. They went from one evil king to one unrighteous king to one horrendous king to another evil king to another king. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came down and completely annihilated the northern kingdom and they were gone. God had had enough. Because it's simple. On the mountain, you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. Understand the big picture. Understand, you listen to me and you follow my lead, I will be with you. You go against me. And yet Judah seesawed, teeter-tottered from good king to bad king, from good king to bad king, backwards and forwards. God was becoming incredibly dizzy with all of this. And we are, as you read kings, right? You're thinking, oh, hooray, there's a good king, way, and there was blessing in the land, boo, 
there's a bad king, oh, oh, die. And then a good king, hey, hey, and God's having a headache saying, give me those tablets. And, and all this is going on until finally God has had enough. We are now at B.C. 586. The Babylonians turn up. Jeremiah had prophesied it. They would be taken into exile for 70 years. They turn up and in three waves of exile, the nation is destroyed. The temple is in ruins. The walls have gone and the Babylonians have taken them away. But of course, God wasn't finished. Because Jeremiah had said 70 years would pass and God would do something. When we're faithful, when we understood, and there they were by the rivers of Babylon. You know, you know the psalm. If you don't know the psalm and you're new to church, you probably know the song by Boney M. No. And great song. And there they were, sat by the rivers of Babylon. We have characters like Daniel, where Daniel was present and speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and to the four kings, uh, different ones, and, and at work and so on. And yet God's plan was not over. Why? Because in a tent in the Middle East, God spoke to Abraham and said, you will be a mighty nation. And God's not finished with Israel. He's going to do something. He raised up, and we read that in Ezra, that that, that 50,000 came back to rebuild the temple. And there they rebuilt it, but they didn't function in the temple. And and we understand that the temple was completed in B.C. 516, 70 years later. Cyrus allowed that to happen. But now we find a man, a man that is willing, a man that is there, who is willing to say, listen, I am a man, I'm passionate for the cause, but I care enough to make a difference. I care enough. That where I am and where I am at this moment, I care enough to start to make a difference. You see, the worst thing that a church can have and the worst thing that can happen to the nation of Israel and the worst thing that can happen in your life and in my life is this, is indifference. That we become indifference to the will of God. There are certain things and to the kingdom of God and to the work of God that indifference comes. That indifference is at work and we can't allow ourselves because the walls are broken down. And the story of Nehemiah is about a man that wasn't willing to be indifferent. He was willing to care. He was willing to make a difference. And Nehemiah was a man that cared. Just as Jesus taught in Luke chapter 10 about the power of the good Samaritan. We must care. We must not ignore. We must not step over. When God asks us to do something, we must do something. And he was a man that was willing to do something at this moment. And so we find him. Nehemiah willing. So four things I want to mention to you. He, of course... 
He cared about the traditions of the past and the needs of the present. He cared about the hopes of the future. He cared about the heritage, his ancestral city, and the glory of his God. He revealed this caring attitude in four different ways. The first way, he cared enough actually to seek and to ask. You see, when we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, and as we read that Nehemiah greeted his brother. And as he greeted his brothers who came from Jerusalem, he inquired of them and he said to them, in verse 1, 2 and 3, he said to them, what is happening in Jerusalem? What is taking place? The word of Nehemiah, son of Hakai, in the month of Kileth, in the twelfth year, while I was there, the citadel of Susan, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah and some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. He heard these words as a man and he knew that something needed to change. He knew that something needed to happen. He knew that, that he, he cared enough to ask. He cared enough to inquire. He cared enough to say, oh, what is going on? This isn't the way. And of course, God put it in his heart because Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt because 400 150 years later, a child would be born. And then 33 or so years later, a man would die on the cross in the city of Jerusalem that was the Messiah that would bring salvation to the whole of the world. That needed to happen. And so God needed a man who was willing to forsake everything, be willing to be a man of prayer, be willing to believe that the walls could be rebuilt, that their brokenness could take place, that God could do something amazing. See, let me explain about Nehemiah to you. Nehemiah is a cupbearer in the king. He's a, a very key individual. Now, let me explain to you, Nehemiah is not an English butler. Let me just show you probably the most famous English butler at the moment. True? How many of you have watched Netflix and watched Downton Abbey? Don't admit to that. But hey, you did. Anyway, here we have Carson, the most famous English butler at the moment. I have a, have a confession. I watched the final ever Downton Abbey in its history on Christmas Day in England as it was aired. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was like watching paint dry. Um, <laughs> No, I did it for the love of a woman. And there I am. But Carson, he's not nothing like, he's not, you see, a cupbearer was not a butler. A cupbearer was a civil servant. He was a man of influence. He was the man that had a connection with the king. He was a man that was able to, to influence, to understand the way the court worked, to understand the powers and the influences, to be most intimate in feeding and tasting the food, the drink of the of the king himself. There is that close relationship that exists. But even though he was prestigious, even though he had the best job, even though he was amazing, 
He chose to ask about a remnant in Jerusalem because he knew that God came first, even beyond his job and his influence. He could have retired, but he chose, no way, I need God's heart for this. Amazing that what came first to Nehemiah, I think we can move on from Carson. You'll all be thinking about Downton Abbey and the episodes you've missed. Um, we can change this picture. Michelle said, there was a really good sermon last night, Phil, but Carson was too on the screen for too long, and it kind of made me feel a bit strange. <laughs> Oi! Thank you. Jen, I owe you two Starbucks. Um, but we understand this, don't we? We understand that actually, that, that, that he was willing, he was a man placed at this time, in this position, to be used by God. Can I encourage you something? That God has placed you and I in this church, in this city, with all these other churches at this time for God to do something wonderful. You see, we know that there's broken down walls in Canada. We know that spiritually there is a vacuum being created. We know that what God is desiring is a faithful, committed church that will rise up and be willing to engage in his heart, that be willing to engage in the call, that is willing to make a difference in the world that we live in. God is looking for that kind of church that is willing across Canada to make a difference. But you may feel, I, I feel... I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm small. I feel like I'm insignificant. Can I just remind you something? There's a, a picture here of a, a hinge. Massive, big doors swing on small hinges. See, Nehemiah was a small hinge in a mighty empire, but God used him to open the door and to make a difference. Think for a moment of Esther, some years earlier, a young girl taken into the harem of the emperor, and God used a small hinge to save a whole nation from genocide. What about Joseph? We've already talked about him, a small hinge from a prison cell to prime minister. God used him. You see, here he is in Susan. The northern city of the Persian Empire, the Winter Palace. And he stood there and he knows that as he prays, as he waits, as he believes that God can do something. He, he cared enough to ask. He cared enough to understand scripture that this is not the way it should be. He cared enough to say the cause that I want to give for or even die for. Because he could have turned to the king and asked. And when the king spoke to him and said, why are you downcast? He, he, he could have been in danger of dying at that moment. Because, because ancient emperors needed to be protected. No bad news. They need to be loved. They need to be looked after. They were despots. And at any moment, he could have jeopardized his whole life at that moment. But the kingdom of God and the call of Israel and God's mighty plan came absolutely first. You may feel like a small hinge where you are. You may wonder why God has placed you where you're situated. You may wonder how God is going to use you. 
But can I tell you that you may feel like a small hinge, but if you become available for God to use you, God will use you. You see, we are his faithful people. It still applies today. It still applies. It works quite simply as we say on the mountaintop. If you are faithful to the Lord, God will be faithful to you. If you seek his face and acknowledge him as first in your life, then you will be blessed. But if you turn against and allow sin to grab hold of your life and allow other issues to grab hold of your life, if the church allows things to grab hold of its life other than the passion for Jesus Christ. And I love our young adults. I love it when they get on the stage. They just talk about Jesus. It's like they know him, which they do. Isn't that wonderful? That they know Jesus. That we're raising a generation of hundreds of young people that know Jesus. But we, we realize this. You see, it was an ordinary day. But God was about to do something extraordinary. In your ordinary days, don't walk through your ordinary days and think that's it. Know that in an ordinary moment, God, in a small moment, can do something extraordinary. Look for God's voice. You see, Moses, it was an ordinary day. He was just going out after 40 years into the wilderness to look after his sheep. But the ordinary day turned into the extraordinary. Why? Because God turned up in a bush. You see, James and John... Peter and Andrew, it was an ordinary day of clearing their nets out, of working on their nets a bit by bit. And what happened, it was turned into an extraordinary day because a man stood next to them by their nets and said, come follow me and I will make you fishermen of men. You see, your ordinary life has been extraordinarily impacted because one day you met Jesus. Come on. You know salvation came to your home. You know salvation has come to your life. You know that God in his great providential love and grace called you on an ordinary rainy day. A 15-year-old was stood there with a group of other 15-year-olds in a little rainy English town because you don't go to England in December for any other reason apart from a love of a family because it just rains and rains. I got back here by canoe and, and I sustained the family drinking and eating maple syrup. And, and as, as we, you realize that, and then on that day, one person came up to me and said, you know, Jesus loves you. It was an ordinary day that became extraordinary because that was my first introduction to the gospel at 15. You've had ordinary days that have become extraordinary because Jesus has entered your life. You may feel like a small hinge, but we serve a big door. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one that rebuilds the temple. He's the one that rebuilds the walls. He's the one that works. He cared enough 
to ask. He cared enough to weep. Look at the scripture. It talks about that he wept when he heard the news. He became so broken. He started to weep and fast, influencing when I heard these things. I sat down and I wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And when God puts a burden on your heart, don't try to escape it. For if you do, you may miss the blessing he has planned for your life. Don't escape the tears. You can tell a lot about a person about what they cry over. And you can tell a lot about a person about what they laugh over. And you can tell a lot about their character. But like... like Oh, like Jeremiah himself who wept over Jerusalem. Like Jesus himself who wept over Jerusalem. Like, like Paul in Acts 20 who wept. He knew that they knew that God was doing something and they needed to be part of it. You see, it, we have to be willing to pray. To pray. There was an old preacher that used to come and preach at our church. I never realized who he was. His name was Alan Redpath. hundred people. They say, Alan Redpath's coming, you must come. And hear him, we all went and listened to him. He was great orator. I didn't realize he was such a magnificent theologian and teacher as a 15-year-old. But he spoke these words. There is too much working before men and too little waiting before God. Okay, as a church, we're taking a bold step. We want to wait before God. We want to be willing to put prayer as a priority in 2016. We want to engage as many people as we can in little ways and big ways and ways that you can. Our young adults have created this prayer room. Go and look at it in 2.12 at the end of the service participate in this. He prayed, and I haven't got time now to unpack all of this sermon. But we're part of God's massive plan. And it's quite simple. We go back to the mountain. Put me first, and you'll be blessed. Put me as number one. You see, when we look at his prayer, and we'll turn to the prayer for a moment in the following verses, notice some things. There are three words I think I want to leave with you. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great God and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear and to pray your servants praying before you day and night. Your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my fathers and my father's family, have committed against you. See, there's a word there. And the word is we. He had no reason to use the word we. He could have used the Guess pronoun they. They've done this. Look what they've done. Look at the way the northern kingdom was. Look at the way Judah was. Look, they have done this to us. No. He said we. In other words, he owned the pain and the failure of the nation. 
and he was willing to confess we have sinned. You see, the nation that we live in is Canada. And as a collective, we, the Church of Canada, are responsible for the salvation and praying and the evangelization and the move of God in Canada. And what we've got to be willing is that we are the ones that have to take responsibility. We are the church that has to take responsibility. We, as this Christian church in Canada, as, as, as things change, as things decay, as, as secularism takes over, as atheism becomes the religion, as things fill the gap. It is we, the church, that needs to stand up and to pray and to seek the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And where we, the church, across the nation, have failed to do this, we need to own that. We need to confess that, but we need to know that it is us together that will bring the mighty move of God in Canada, in this church, in this city, in this province. But we have to do it. It's quite simple. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws you gave your servant Moses right the way back. Remember the instructions he gave your servants Moses? Here's the instruction. If you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you to the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then I will gather you. See, that works for nations, it works for churches, and it works for your family. If I am faithful, as the head of my home, God will be at work. But if I become unfaithful, there's going to be problems, isn't there? Because sin, idols, things can enter in. First word was we. The second word he uses, remember. He reminded God of his promises. Remember, remember, remember. And the third is favor. God, will you have favor again on us? Will you rebuild your walls again? I am passionate for the cause. Have you been indifferent in your Christian life? Have you lost passion? Have you lost commitment? I've told you the whole story of God and now we're still in it. We're in now the age of the church. And the church is called in the same way that Israel was called to bless the nations. To pray. To seek God. He calls us so go, gosh, you're a strange church having 21 days of prayer and fasting. Why has that become strange in Canada? Why has a prayer meeting become the least attended church meeting in the whole of Canada? There's a danger, isn't there? But I want to give you good news. That God can do it. What was driving him? Nehemiah. This is what was going on in Nehemiah's heart with vision. He saw what the situation is, but he knew what the situation could become. 
Prayer isn't so much of you trying to change the will of heaven. Prayer is you coming in line with the will of heaven to be done on earth. He knew what it could be like. He knew what could happen. He knew what could take place. But there was this remnant, ruined. But he knew God could do it, and he was willing to volunteer. He cared enough to pray. He cared enough to step in. He cared enough to volunteer. You see, a vision, a burden that God gives you takes time to mature. And I read the scriptures and visions mature from what I can see in scripture from four months to 40 years. It depends what God is asking you to do, right? If you're going to lead a nation out of slavery after 400 years, you probably need 40 years in the wilderness to mature and be ready. Some of you are maturing, ready for God to release a vision. Some of you... It's time for God to take you on a new journey of prayer. But I know God loves you enough that he wants to engage with all the areas of your life. On Wednesday morning, 80 pastors in Kelowna gathered in the morning at Trinity Baptist Church and we spent the whole morning seeking God in prayer. We rebuilt some walls that morning. Monday evening, Willow One Prayer, the city is coming to Willow Park Church, the pastors, senior pastors, they're inviting their congregations this morning to gather with Willow Park Church and we will pray for our city, we'll pray for our province, we will do exactly what Nehemiah is doing. Don't miss it. Come and gather and pray Come and begin. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But as they come, I want to ask you to think about this. What are three things you're believing God for in this period of prayer, 21 days? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's something that you're asking the Lord to do. Maybe it's about a sickness. I don't know. But I know God cares about your situation. Maybe it's an area you have not seen a breakthrough. See, Jesus taught, sometimes we don't see it happening because some things need to be dealt with, with fasting and praying. Just read Mark 9 towards the end after the transfiguration and you'll see that there at that moment. So as they come and prepare and lead us in this song to close, ask the Lord... What are the three things, three areas of my life, of my family, that I'm going to believe for 21 days? And when I miss my Starbucks and sit in the park, I say that by faith, that the snow is gone. Or when I carve out that time in the prayer room, what am I believing God for? Where do you need breakthrough? In your life, in your family, in your career? in your college, life, wherever you are, where do you need God to work? Husband and wife, join together with goals and believe. Friends, meet together and pray. But we can see the ruined walls. 
but it's time to rebuild. Prepare yourself for this period. Maybe you need to encounter God. Monday, um, Friday, it starts at Friday at 5.30, 6 o'clock, runs through to Saturday, 5 o'clock. I teach those sessions. Then we'll be teaching the second part of this little bit of Nehemiah. We're going to do 10 sessions next weekend. Encourage people to watch this. But more importantly than anything, it's that you start to believe again that you can see God work in those areas you're believing for. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, at the beginning of 2016, I thank you for this wonderful church family and what an honor it is to lead it. And I pray blessing on their lives, on their families. I pray blessing on their life and their Christian faith. I pray, Lord, at the beginning of 2016, that every home and every individual that calls Willow Park their home will know the blessing and the faithfulness and the goodness of God on their lives, Lord. I pray, God, that you release that vision in their homes. That where there are broken down walls, they'll be rebuilt. That where there are gaps, that they will be filled. That God, that you will bless our church in 2016. That we will be a faithful people. An open people. A listening people. Eager and ready to deal with our own personal sin. Eager and ready for you to be at work. God, we welcome you. In 2016, and we pray blessing on each of our communities, each of our campuses, each of our pastors, each of our families, that we may know like never before a profound sense that God is with us. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's worship together this final song. Listen to God's voice about how you should respond. And I welcome any step forward in your life.